You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. What's going on, Kensington?
He's acquainted with our grief. O man of sorrow, son of suffering. Blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who believes. Oh, praise the one who would reach for me. Your star. 
Good morning. Anybody else waiting for Chris to just knock the keyboards over one day? He's like, by the way, when Matthias does that thing where he stops singing sometimes and it's just like letting us sing, and you know what I realize? When he's singing, I actually think I sound better than I am. Because like when he's singing, I'll have moments where I'm like, man, I have an amazing voice. I'm like hitting every note and every key, and then he stops, and I'm like, no, I'm not, actually. I'm not good at all. So. Uh, all right, a um, couple things really quick. Uh, first thing that we're going to do this morning is just thank you for your ongoing generosity, and uh, we're going to receive up our offering. Your generosity is the kind of stuff that helps us do what we're doing right now in the Dominican Republic with a team across all of our campuses of high school students that are down there serving and sweating and just sharing the love of Jesus. Uh, we've been getting reports. It's been super fun. Uh, we've got this text thread for our Orient campus. We've been getting reports all week long of how things are going and funny videos and watching them all work and uh, even things to pray for. Like one of the girls down there got super sick and uh, couldn't keep anything down and kind of enlisted an army across our campuses to start praying for her. And within several hours, she had a complete turnaround and started feeling totally better. So that was awesome to watch. But just seeing what God is not just using them to do, but I think even more importantly, what he is forming in them. Uh, as a result of them being there is, is really only possible uh, in so many ways because of you and your generosity. So as always, we're just super appreciative of those of you that have linked arms with us in this way. And if you haven't, we'd love to invite you in to be a part of the fullness of what it means to be this community. And one part of that is through these ways here and just giving and serving and believing and trusting that when we do, God uses that and he uses it to incredible ends to reach more people. So, all right. Uh, a couple things I want to talk about. So I'm going to sit with you. <laughs> she says, are we in trouble? <laughs> Y'all remember that feeling when you got called to the principal's office? Ooh, some of you are like, no, I never did. I spent a lot of time there myself. So no, nobody's in trouble. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. Um, 
So our, uh, our team of, of leadership here, all of our campus leads uh, from our various campuses, uh, so all of my counterpart roles, uh, led by our lead pastor, Craig Mays, who uh, I think you hopefully remember has recently stepped into that role uh, as a part of us continuing to move forward, looking for our next senior pastor. Craig's current responsibility is to lead the team of the leads right now and to lead Kensington. So the leads and Craig have spent... Uh, an excessive amount of time in the last couple of days since Friday trying to figure out, do we address what just happened at the Supreme Court? How do we address it? What do we say? How do we say it? This is an enormous moment with a lot of divided feelings and mixed emotions. And so I couldn't even begin to sum up for you the amount of text messages and emails and phone calls and and drafts of ideas of what to say and how to say and in the end, uh, after many back and forth moments and hours and hours of work, uh, we did feel like this is a moment where we need to say something. It would be irresponsible on us not to say something. At the same time, we have labored, genuinely labored to figure out in what we say, how does it exalt Jesus Christ and love one another? You know, we've been given a job as followers of Jesus to understand the will of God and we are given two incredible ways to do that. One is through the person of Jesus and the life he lived, and the other is through the full counsel of the scriptures. And so we have turned to both of those places in the last couple of days to figure out, okay, God, how do we, as your church, respond in this moment, especially when we live in a time that everything is so divided over every issue, ones that deeply matter like this, and even ones that don't. We just are such a triggered people. And so what we ended up with is a letter that Craig Mays drafted as a result of hours of conversation that we had together as a leadership team. And I want to read that to you, then I want to make a couple of statements myself, and, uh, and then pray, and then we'll continue on in our morning. By the way, let me just say this before I read. Some of you will probably, based on what I read and what I say, you'll have a tendency to feel like I said too much. Um, some of you will feel like we didn't say enough. And so I would just ask of you what I asked of the first service, which is allow us the grace to be where we all are right now, uh, trying to figure out how to, in a a Jesus-honoring and in a people-loving way, navigate this moment in history. Since the decision of the Supreme Court on Friday regarding Roe versus Wade, some of us have been celebrating because we have been waiting our whole lives for this to happen. Others of us are angry, afraid, devastated, and feel threatened. And many of us have friends in both camps. This is messy for all of us, and you may be feeling that. It's messy in the sense that we are challenged to figure out how to love and care for people with opposing views. Whatever you think and whatever you feel about the Supreme Court and what they have decided, whether you are celebrating or mourning, we want you to know this. This is a safe space for you. You are respected and you are loved. As much as we would like to believe that all followers of Jesus line up on the same side of the issue of abortion, we know that is simply not the case. We know that in these very seats, as well as for those of you engaged online, there are many differing convictions. So what are we to do with this? Rather than using this moment to create more anger, division, and polarization, we believe the Supreme Court's decision, which has fostered both joy and anger, creates an amazing opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to live out his teaching Blessed are the peacemakers. The question is, can we live in the mess as well as in the tension in love? 
If you're rejoicing today, we're asking you to think about what it might mean to love and sensitively come alongside someone near you who is grieving and heartbroken. Similarly, if you are devastated over this, what might it mean for you to try to love and understand those who have an opposing view? There is never an excuse for us not to embody grace, love, and compassion. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors, not just those who agree with us, look like us, or believe like us. Again, Jesus' words were, blessed are the peacemakers. So what does it look like for us today as a church to be peacemakers in the midst of such cultural upheaval? We are mindful in the current dialogue of the importance of valuing life. Through our global partners at Kensington, we care for orphans in India and Kenya. We rescue children in Nepal from sex trafficking. We have cared for those in Afghanistan and Ukraine this year who have been forced to flee their country. Jesus taught us to treat all of creation as valuable. And we are doing that, and we believe there's still so much more that we can do. We as a church want to value life all along the way. We long to figure out how to help people experience that by truly caring and supporting every human life in ways we haven't even achieved so far. As we navigate the implications of the Supreme Court's decision, we are called to have empathy and compassion for all who are impacted by it. We believe that our calling is to value women and to value children, to value the unborn and to value the born, to talk less about it and to do more about it, and to demonstrate how the radical love of Jesus reaches into every broken place and brings healing. So that's, that's a statement from Craig compiled by all of our leads discussing how to respond and with what to respond. But a couple things I just want to maybe underscore from this and, and add to it. And there's so much too, right? There's many things that we could say. And, and first thing I would want you to hear, um, I, don't, I, I would never want to make a statement and feel like, well, that's it, we made a statement. So please feel the freedom even after today or in the days to come, in the weeks to come, if you want to talk more, if you want to hear more, if you want to understand more, if you want to disagree more, please do. Whether that's to our elders, whether that's to Craig, whether that's to me or any of our leads, like this isn't a, a statement and just let's go about our way. I think part of how Craig ended is what we all agreed that this has to be more than just a statement but action to follow and really as a church figuring out what that looks like. But we do believe that all of human life is valuable. And as Craig wrote, from the unborn to the born, and for two clear reasons. One is because every single human being embodies the imago Dei, that is the image of God, which is an incredible reality because no other part of creation bears God's image, but you and I as men and women are made in the image of the maker himself. And according to the Psalms, as David writes, uh, he was intimately involved in that process before you breathe there. And yet, if, if we only value at the moment of birth and not beyond, I think we have failed the ultimate value of what life is and the responsibility that that beckons from us as God's people. And so a few thoughts that I've just been having, and I'll throw them at you very quickly. Number one, we have to be a place that I think in this moment in history, ask God, how would you have us to uniquely step in and what would you have us to uniquely do? Frankly, I think the church 
should be leading the charge in how it is that we step in in tangible, practical, physical ways to assist women that are in places of confusion and hurting and isolation. I think that we have to, the church should frankly be a place that we have some of the greatest resources of crisis pregnancy aid and centers and assistance and resource. We, we are about to enter into a time in history, the likes of which most of us have not seen, where there is going to be a lot of hurting people that we can care for. And if the church does not figure out how to mobilize resources, time, effort, energy into tangible ways of love, then I think all we'll have is talk. And I think it's time for us in this moment and situation to say, what does it look like for us to put our money where our mouth is and do more than talk? And I think we should be one of the greatest resources to that end in the name of Jesus and for the love of one another. Second, I would say this, I would hope that the church would always be a place where those of us that consider ourselves to be followers of Jesus would embody the call that he modeled for us to throw grace at one another, not stones, regardless of what we disagree on and regardless of what any of us have done with our lives. May we never forget that the God that we follow in the form of a man was the one willing to stand in between the woman cast to the ground ready to be stoned and the men holding stones. And I think it is our job as followers of Jesus to be those who do not throw stones, but we throw grace. The, the, the world has seen the church rip itself apart in a vicious way in the last number of years, more than I've ever seen. And the church has never been a perfect place because we're imperfect people. But this is a time, I think, for us to truly embody when Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another, that on our watch, we will not let anything lead us to hate one another when the God who died for us gave his life for one another. And so we must embody that. But here's the third thing I would say, and I would hope the church would also be marked by this. It's a place where we call men and challenge men to be who it is God made them to be and call them to the account of that. This issue is not just an issue of women and children, it is an issue of men as well, and they have so conveniently at times been left out of the conversation and the equation. I think that the church should also equally, as we try to figure out how do we respond to the situation, be a place with both compassion but boldness, call men to be the men that God has made us to be in our character, our demeanor, our responsibility, and our treatment of women. So there's, I said that there's a lot more to say, and some of you, again, you're gonna feel like maybe we've said too much or, or said too little. But this isn't the last thing to either say on this. I think there's much more to say and there's even much more to do. And so I would ask that we would all be in prayer as people of Jesus, that he would lead us. As our senior most pastor, he would be the one that would counsel us on how to respond in a way that honors Christ and in a way that loves one another. So that's what I have to say. And would love to... Would love to invite you again. I already had many people take me up on it after service. So uh, my assistant is going to be working overtime, booking my calendar potentially. But would love to invite you if you want to have more conversations. I would love to. Because I don't ever want to be a place where we just make a statement on something so great and important and that be the end of it. It's not the end of it. It's the beginning of it. So we're in the fourth week of a series that uh, I, I've struggled whether or not I was more excited about last week or this week. I think both of these weeks have been very exciting for me in coming into them because of the importance of what I want to talk about today is prayer. And so the series has been defining moments, and it has been a series built on the idea that there are moments in our life that are more than just moments. 
There are moments that in their nature define so much of our trajectory in life. And moments that in God's sovereignty and goodness, he often intervenes into in a way to create not just a defining moment, but a healing moment, a restoring moment, and even a redemptive moment. So Joel, who is the lead pastor at our Travis City campus, is the one sharing his defining moment this morning. So here's Joel, and then I'll be back up afterwards. My entire life, I've always had people telling me how or what to pray. I was buried in tactics, rubrics, and step-by-step guides. I was taught the mechanics of prayer before I had a passion for prayer. When I realized that prayer was a conversation, it opened my heart to the Lord in a whole new way. I began to see Him as a Father who cared about every detail of my day, every emotion I was feeling, and all the fears and concerns I had. From that, a relationship formed. When I was in college, I had a crisis of faith. I realized that what I believed and how I was living were two very separate things. My friends all went to Florida on spring break to do the normal spring break activities and party and and stuff like that. I decided to go to my grandma and grandpa's in Myrtle Beach and spent time with them. And I walked the beach and I remember looking out over the ocean, having this experience. I really surrendered my heart to the Lord at that time. When I came back, I realized that I wanted to live out my faith. And so I started thinking about different Bible verses I had learned. So I would open the Psalms and I would read these these poems. And I I realized that they were prayers. Uh, It wasn't just poetry. It was was a deeply human uh, poem that expressed David's joy, frustration, pain, fear, he went to God with, with everything that he was experiencing. It was an ongoing conversation. And so I remember in my apartment complex in Hampton Apartments on Rochester Road, I would open the Psalms, I would read the prayers of David, try to get them in my head, in my heart, and then I would write down the date and the time when I read the prayer. After I read these Psalms, I would go out on the golf course and walk the cart paths and try to duplicate a prayer life. I tried to do with my words as I walked what I saw David doing in the Psalms. So I would walk these cart paths and I would share everything with God. I was like a kid talking to his dad about the day. Like, Dad, uh, I've had a pretty good day. Are you, are you proud of me? Have you seen the decisions that I've made, the things that I've done? Are you proud of me? I'd, I'd pray uh, about the fears or the concerns talking to God as a father, like, Dad, I'm scared about this, or I need you to help me, I need your advice. I'd be so filled with joy at times that I would even raise my hands and start praying blessing over the houses that lined the golf course. I remember tears, there's times that I would be crying, there's times that I'd be laughing, and it became like the highlight of my day. In time, this started to influence the decisions that I made in my life. The people that I spent time with and confided in, the decisions that I made with uh, college and my major and my future career, uh, it even dis- uh, decided my dating life. I decided to date uh, a girl uh, that I actually, we grew up in the same town, but we got married. Now we have kids, we have three kids. Uh, now I'm uh, a pastor, and I look back 
and I look at how the trajectory changed in those prayers on those cart paths at that golf course. Those habits, those disciplines, those patterns of prayer that I developed 15 years ago, I can't say that I've been consistent with that the whole time. Even in my life and my career and in ministry, uh, there's been seasons where I've, I haven't prayed. I haven't prioritized those conversations. A couple years ago, um, my oldest son um, had an accident and um, he, it was a terrible burn accident. And uh, I'm grateful that I had the background of prayer being a conversation uh, because as our family went through these hard times, and I processed why, why did this happen? How could this happen to my family? Um, it just gave me the tools that I needed to really confide in God and um, try to sort things out with him. I think of David, sometimes David would write the Psalms and he'd say, Lord, where are you? Why does it feel like you're missing or gone from a situation? I think of Jesus talking about how he felt like his father had forsaken him. And that really gave me permission to pray the same things. Like, God, where are you? Why did you let this happen to me, our family, my son? And just the, just the freedom to express my concerns, my frustrations in the form of prayer was incredibly healing for me. Maybe you don't think you're super articulate, or maybe you're really articulate and poetic. But in my experience, when it comes to prayer, it is so much more powerful when you just simply prioritize the time. You set aside the time for prayer. Um, and so I don't know where you are in your life or how busy you are, but um, my encouragement to you would to be simply to set aside time, to make that time to be in conversation with God and just pour out your heart doesn't matter how poetic or articulate you are. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to do it. Simply doing it, uh, it it'll grow. And um, you'll, you'll discover that a relationship, a deeper relationship forms. So my thought is, if we're going to talk about prayer, why don't, we, uh, why don't we start with it? If you're... If you're a regular, you know that I usually begin with prayer, um, but I'd love to invite all of us to do that for just a minute. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna just create a space of silence for a moment and just let you, where you're at, just give God whatever you got, whether that's just silence, not really sure what to say, whether that's uncertainty that there's anyone even there to hear it, so you just wanna sit in that moment, like, I don't know, or whether that's a request, whether that's a frustration, I just wanna invite you for a moment. We're gonna talk about it, let's do it. Let's have a moment, we're together and collectively in your place, whether you wanna do it out loud or wanna do it silent, uh, let's just have a moment of prayer and then after a minute, I'm gonna kinda of bring us back, I'll pray for us and, and take us into our text for the day.
God, thank you for the incredible reality that every single person, every thought offered to you, every word out loud, every word in the heart is heard by your ear. There's no confusion. There's no, there's no text thread that just gets too long and you have to catch up on what we said to you. You hear it in the moment it's spoken. You care about what we say to you that there is an intimacy with which your ear leans toward us when we talk to you. And so, God, I just thank you for that. I pray that the, the few seconds, the moment, that there were so many things maybe offered up to you, that you would be responsive to those things, that you would move. God, you say in your word where two or three of us agree on something, so I just want to be an agreer with the things that were asked of you and said to you this morning and ask that you would move on behalf of the things that were put before your throne. God, I also ask that as we open up this book that you've given us to understand you better, that the counsel of this book would give weight to our understanding of prayer, of speaking to you, of being heard by you. I pray that even for those of us that maybe have walked with you for so long that you would bring something fresh to our understanding of prayer. To those of us newer to the journey, bring something powerful to our understanding of prayer. And I pray that it would become more than just a religious concept, but it would become laced with the power and the intimacy of our ability to call on, to be heard by, and even to hear the God of creation. And I pray that you would help me as just a man on this stage to be able to honor you, to say what is right and true to Jesus and to the counsel of this book. And I pray that you would be seen, you would be heard, you would be lifted up. In Christ's name, amen. So somebody, um, I don't know why I'm telling you this, I'll tell you, somebody asked me recently, one of the questions I get asked a lot actually is, why do you hold your Bible like this? And so I had this thought, it literally came to me like the last like 24 hours, so I'm gonna give it to you. You know, Jesus is called the bread of life. You know, he satisfies if you consume him, and, but I don't particularly like bread so much as I like tacos. So there you go, my taco Bible, gonna digest it. No? All right, well, 11 o'clock thought I was funnier, so, or you are 11, I don't even know what time it is. Wow, it's gonna be a day. All right, so let's talk about prayer. There's all kinds of ways and, and just directions we can go when it comes to prayer. We could talk about how to pray and why to pray, and we could talk about the, the structure of the Lord's Prayer. You know, Jesus himself, when his disciples, only thing they ever asked to be taught, I mean, think about that. Of all the things they saw him do, there's only one thing they ever said, teach us that, and it was prayer. And that's where you get the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he goes through this prayer that wasn't so much a structure as it was the intent of how to pray. We talk about that. We could talk about the relational side of prayer that Joel just walked through. But the one thing that I want to spend just a couple minutes talking to you about is the power of prayer. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to a book called Ephesians. If you don't, we're going to put the verses on the screen for you. Uh, as always, we'd encourage you to bring this if you have it. If you don't have one, get one. If you can't get one, uh, let us know and we'll give you one. But Ephesians is a book written by a man named Paul to a church that he was a part of starting in Ephesus. And Paul writes words that are where we're going to start, but I want to take you uh, kind of through a couple different places in the Bible, from New Testament to Old Testament, things that even Jesus said, in hopes that for all of us, myself included, is that our understanding of prayer would grow a little bit more forward so that it would lead each of us, like Joel, to have more defining moments in our experiences of prayer. So here's what, here's what Paul writes to us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And put on the full armor of God, 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So part of what Paul begins with is a bit of an overstatement of what we all know. He's, He's addressing, first of all, that there's difficulty and challenge in life. We all know this. Jesus talked about, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Following Jesus does not alienate you from trouble, difficulty, pain, and suffering in this life. In many ways, sometimes it brings it even more on. And so Paul is saying what we all know, this is no surprise, this is nothing new. In this world, you're gonna have trouble. But then he says something that I think takes the trouble to a place that we all are familiar with. There are times where the trouble is not just trouble, it's described as what Paul would say, it's a battle. If there's times that life isn't just difficult, it's just a full-on war. Like anybody, anybody would admit, like in the last couple of years, you have been tangled up in some kind of a, of a battle. It's been more than difficulty. It's been more than challenge. You would say, man, I have faced a battle in the last couple of years. And some of you have faced it with people. Some of you have faced it in private and nobody knew and you've been in isolation. But many of us have faced things in the last few years that there's no other way to describe it, but it was war. It was a battle. Even statistics would tell us this. 45% of married couples say that post-COVID or coming out of COVID, where we're at with COVID, they would say now, as opposed to pre-COVID, 45% of them say their marriages are more challenging. My wife and I married 25, almost 26 years. I can tell you, we've had some of our best moments in the last couple of years. Literally, in the last two years, some of our best moments of our entire marriage we've had together. And we've also had some of our dumbest, worst fights in the last couple of years. Or the fact that 25% increase in depression and anxiety has been the result of the last couple of years. Those are battles. How about our kids that are coming out of high school? Right now is the graduation season. Probably a lot of you, like me, you've been at graduation party after graduation. I mean, that's what our weekends are right now. And here's all these kids, like mine last year that graduated high school, that are entering into a world that is just in many ways upside down, economically, relationally, and They are are facing battles that I think we can easily argue are much more intense in some ways than you and I faced, at least than I faced when I graduated high school. Those are battles. How about that we continue to watch children take the lives of other children in our schools? Those are battles. And so what Paul will also go on to write here in just these few verses, is not just underlining the reality of life is difficult and sometimes it's just a full-out battle, but he writes something next that for some of us we already know and need to be reminded of, and maybe others of us, we, we just don't realize it sometimes and we need to be corrected in this. He says, here's where your battle is and is not. He says, your battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, your battle's not against who? People. Yeah. And I love this because Paul doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say, most of your battles aren't against flesh and blood, but some of them, like your, your ridiculous neighbor, Bill, yeah, that's just Bill. You know, he didn't say that. Like he says, if you've got a battle, fill in the blank name, whatever it is, it's not of a physical origin, even if it has a physical outcome. There is a spiritual origin. And I think so often when the physical reality of a battle overwhelms us, takes us, hits us, then we just blame the physical opponent. We think it's a physical both in origin and in outpour. And Paul says, no, 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 if you're in a battle, here's the reality. Your battle, although it may have a physical reality, it has a spiritual origin. And if our battles have a spiritual origin, that means that our greatest weapon will not be physical either. It will be spiritual. 
And so Paul will go on in this section of verses to write what has probably been one of the more quoted things that he wrote about the armor of God. So he goes on to, to talk over the next couple of verses about how in defense of these powers and spiritual forces and principalities that we have a defense against them. And he describes them as this, this suit of armor and he describes helmets and, and breastplate and, and shoes and sword and it, it's all things that he gives descriptions to. Things like he goes on to say it will be righteousness, peace, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, uh, living a life committed to truth. And he says all of this put together becomes the suit of armor that we wear that gives us the defense against the origins of our battles, which is supernatural. But then I think so often when we talk about this passage, the part that we leave out is where Paul will jump to in verse 18. For some reason, we kind of hang all of our intention and all of our attention on the verses about the suit of armor, the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of truth. And, and we, ne- we neglect, I think, where Paul will take us to that becomes the muscle that bears the weight of it and wields the power of it. And this is what he says, verse 18. And pray. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Pray also for me. Pray that whenever I speak, my words may, be given, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So Paul gives us a suit of armor, but then he jumps to multiple times. I pray, pray, pray for me, pray for you, pray all the time, pray without ceasing, pray fearlessly. He's saying, listen, here is the muscle that bears up the weight of the armor. He says, it's your ability and your commitment to pray. This, this is why you don't take a full suit of armor and put it on a child. You don't put a full suit of armor on a five-year-old. They're not strong enough to bear up the weight of it. It's why you don't take a broadsword and put it in the hands of a three-year-old. They can't even pick the thing up. What's the muscle mass that wields the armor that God has given us? It is prayer, and yet it's so often the most neglected part of it. So I, I, one of my hobbies, I've, I've shared this before. Some of you know this, but one of my hobbies, I love to mountain bike. And I'm going to nerd out for a minute here. So mountain biking, you can get into all kinds of different specs in your bike depending on the kind of riding you're doing, whether you're doing cross country, whether you're doing downhill, whatever the biking is, there's all different kinds. So you can get rigid frame, full suspension, and in your suspension, you get all different kinds of travel in the suspension so that it's softer or harder ride. So nerding out, I told you, right? And so I've got a mountain bike that I just love. It's full suspension. It's kind of a, it's like a, like a mid-grade mountain bike in terms of its specs. And so one of the things that will happen often is my wife and I or their kids will be out on a, a ride in the neighborhood or in our local park on all the paved paths, which is not where I ride my mountain bike. In my opinion, the mountain bike is for my single track off-road trails. That's where you ride it. You don't ride that on the trail, on the paved path. And so this happens all the time. We're riding on a paved path, and here comes some dude on a $7,000 Yeti. I mean, specked out more travel than I would even know what to do with, like a bike that literally could go down the face of a mountain, and here he is, just just down the paved path, and I always get so bothered by that, I'm like, why is he riding that bike on the trail, get out there on the off-road, and my wife, Nicole, all the time, she's like, why does it bother you, mind your own business, and so I tell her the same thing every time, it bothers me, because why do you have all that bike and not use it? I'm like, give me that bike. I'm not riding it in Dodge Park. I'm riding it down a mountain. I'm going to beat the snot out of that thing. I'm going to compress that suspension as far as it'll go. Give it to me. So it always bugs me because I'm like, they've got so much bike being neglected. Here's what I wonder. If God doesn't look at us sometimes and go, why? 
do you have all of that power? And yet in your ceasing to pray, you use so little of it. And please hear me too. This is not like a, a shaming message on prayer. Most of the time when I hear prayer talked about, there's this like shameful edge. Like Jesus died for you and you can't even pray for 10 minutes a day? that's, That's not my intent. Shame is never a great tool for anything. Besides, I don't think that's how God invites us into relationship is by shaming us into it. But if you're a follower of Jesus, like you're committed, like you're saying, man, I believe there's a God, I believe Jesus is him, I wanna walk in the footsteps of him, I wanna live like him, I wanna be like him, then this isn't a new idea either. Like you're not sitting here right now going, prayer, never thought of that one. It's a great idea. But let me ask you, moment of honesty, we're in church, don't lie. How many of you, if you're a committed follower of Jesus, would say your, your prayer life could be more vibrant and more active? And my hand's up not to show you how to raise a hand. My hand's up because I'm with you. Okay. If we know it, why don't we do it? Tony Evans, he's one of my favorite preachers, says this about prayer. For most Christians, prayer is like the national anthem at a baseball game. We do it before the game, but then it has zero relevance to what happens on the field. You ever notice that sometimes you've been around the church world for a while, we'll pray before a service, we'll pray before a meeting, we'll pray before a small group, but it just, it's kind of, it's the national anthem moment. We just kind of do it. Or even like think of our dinner prayer sometimes. You ever caught yourself, you pray before dinner like my family does? Like there are moments, I'm just like, what am I even saying? Dear God, please bless this food. And th- I mean, it's just, it's like, a, it's not, there's nothing personal. We're just kind of going through the routine and it's just, we gotta get it out of the way so that we can get to the food, right? You don't wanna choke on the steak. And it's not like an intentional, tender moment with God of genuine thanks. It's just, it becomes this, this anthem kind of moment. And so again, Why? If we know as followers of Jesus that there is this ability to pray, to be heard by the God of creation, we have a sense that there is power in that, then why don't we pray more often? And I would contend that I think it's often because we fail to realize just how powerful prayer truly is. It's not just throwing words out into the stratosphere. It's actually beckoning the hand of God to move. And he does. But there is a a, a sentiment that has been growing in the last number of years outside the church and inside the church as we have faced things that we just have not faced from, from pandemic and racial upheaval and injustice and shootings in schools. And I mean, you put all of that together, we have just, we have faced a world that has been heartbreaking and heartbroken. And as a result, I think when it comes to prayers, there has been this response that I have heard often outside the church, but increasingly so even inside the church. And it's just simply this, you've heard it too. Thoughts and prayers are meaningless. There's uh, more, than, more than an amount I can even think of right now of, of men and women who I respect and trust, leaders in the church, some who I know personally, some who I've only known from a distance, who I have watched make those kind of sentiments, those kind of comments, those kind of posts, almost viscerally reacting to any kind of prayer, saying, ugh, let's just do something and not pray. There is um, a fairly popular Instagram account uh, that's dedicated to shaming anybody that would respond with prayer. It's literally called F Your Thoughts and Prayers. And every post on there is very aggressive at prayer does nothing, prayer is meaningless, keep your thoughts and your prayers to yourself. It's a sentiment that we see when we do offer to pray for somebody, and sometimes it's greeted with a thanks and sometimes with an eye roll. 
It, it's a sentiment that we feel in ourselves when we have a sense of maybe we should pray for somebody, but we're hesitant to offer it for fear of how they may respond and they may act. So let me just say this. Thoughts and prayers can be meaningless depending on what your thoughts are and who your prayers are to. So I wanna reframe this idea of thoughts and prayers just a little bit through a biblical set of lenses. And, and if I'm honest with you, months ago, I probably would have only wanted to reframe the idea of prayer and I would have probably said, yeah, I mean, thoughts, those don't really matter. But the prayers, yeah, that's where it matters. And yet the more I've sat with God and continued to let the counsel of this book speak to me, I actually continue to realize, no, thoughts and prayers both do matter. So let me take you to two passages, one Old Testament and one New Testament. So here's what the Old Testament tells us about our thoughts. Again, this is a deep dive, very shallow dive that we're going to be able to do today for time's sake. But I want you to see a couple places that our thoughts are referenced in the scriptures. It's powerful and important. For as he thinks in his heart... So is he. Just went New King James style on you, old school on that one. Or maybe your version says, as a man thinks, so he is. There is a reality, and this is no surprise to any of us, that, that what happens in here fuels how you behave out here. That's why if you're taking your kids to a soccer game or a baseball game or a softball game and they're down on themselves and they're like, I just suck and I'm not going to do good and we're going to get beat because that team is so much better than us, what's one of the things that you say? You're going to lose the game up here before you lose it out there. So you've got to win it here. Like, we know this. We know that there is a reality that what we let roll around in our head creates how we respond outside. So, so there is already a precedent, like down in the Old Testament, that your thoughts actually do matter. And I'm going to make a point about why I think they matter in a minute. New Testament. Here's what we read in the New Testament about your thoughts and the power that they have. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, will you just finish it for me? Read it out loud. Right, not just go do such things. Are we, should we do such things as well? Yeah. But, but what we're told here is think about such things. What's he saying? Let this get into your head and roll around in your thoughts. Why? Here's why your thoughts are important. Because when you put your thoughts on the will and the ways of God, guess what changes? You do. We do. We start to change. Take, for example, uh, a mom getting groceries, going out to her car, being carjacked and shot. The true story happened to a woman at the church I came from. Sweetest woman you'd ever meet in your life. Like, like textbook, give you the shirt off her back, go the extra mile, all of that. Like, just unbelievably sweet woman. When the group of us heard about what had happened to her, like, we were enraged. You've been in these moments where you've seen somebody experience some injustice, experience some violence, and all you want to do is what? You want to go give violence. I grew up downriver. I know me some downriver violence. Like, we were all like, let's go find this guy. We want to give him his, like, there was this, we got all whipped up, and you know, we had one of those dumb conversations where you stand around when we heard about what happened, and we were like, man, if we were there, that guy wouldn't have walked away with two legs, and we're, you know, just whipping ourselves up. Now, I was thoroughly happy when he was caught, convicted, and thrown in prison, but my thinking needed to change in that moment, because violence only creates what? Hate only creates, anger only creates, Right, in that moment, my thinking needed to change. Or, or take, take a young dad diagnosed with cancer who could allow his thoughts to lead him to a place of only despair and discouragement and depression, but instead puts his thoughts on Jesus, his goodness, his provision, his care, who could actually experience what Paul wrote about in Romans 12, to be patient even in affliction. Our thoughts matter 
because what our thoughts have the power to change is our perspective going into situations. And we are the ones who create the problems in this world, so we are the ones that need to begin with the change happening with us. Thoughts matter in the moment because it changes how we may respond to a situation, how we may feel about a situation, how we may approach a situation. But here's what has the power to actually change the situation is your prayers. So there's a spot in the Bible in the Old Testament book called Daniel I want to take us to. And I'm just going to tell you right now, this passage is so stinking multi-layered. Like there are so many things I can't address in this. I'm only going to barely touch on like territorial demons. What? Like there's just stuff in here. But I think this is a necessary passage, even though we can't do the justice of the deep dive, because it shows us a reflection of what actually happens in unseen realms when we begin to pray because I don't ever want us to neglect forgetting that our prayers, they don't just matter, they are heard and they create heavenly movement. So Daniel chapter 10. Verse two, at that time, I, Daniel, had mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So Daniel, if you don't know, uh, Daniel has a reputation in the scriptures of being a man of prayer. So he's not, just, he's not just like reactionary prayer, like, hey, there's something going on with other people and I need to pray. Yeah, okay, I'll pray and fast this time. Like this is a habit. This is a lifestyle. There's been other times that he's actually been uh, caught praying and that was part of in the culture he lived in what led him to be accused and at fault with the government because they just knew Daniel prays. He prays multiple times a day. So it was a known thing. It was even in many ways a public thing. It, this, is, this is a guy who doesn't just pray out of reaction, he prays out of affection. He believes that there's a God who cares, who listens, who leans in, and who moves. And so this is a habit for Daniel. But there are certain times in life where it's more than just praying for a thing. Like you go into a dedicated season, and that's what he's doing. That's why it says he's not eating certain meats. He's, he's going into prayer and not eating certain things, no lotions. So there's the prayer, but there's also the giving up of certain benefits of life. So there's the fasting combined with it. So this is an intense moment of him really going before God saying, I need you. I need a response from you. I need movement from you. And here's what we read happens. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river of the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like topaz and his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches and his arms and legs like the gleaming burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision and those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. Like even just that, like that's even an amazing reality of this story. Daniel prays, several weeks go by, seems like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden God dispatches an angel to him to give him a response. He's the only one that sees it. Nobody else sees it, but there's such a visceral presence and reality to this appearance that even the people that don't see it freak out, like, ah, and take off. Like, what the heck? So this is happening to Daniel in this moment. And it says, so I, le I was left alone, gazing at the great vision, and I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking. And as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And then he said this to me as I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. For since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, 
your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. I'm just going to ask an obvious question. He says, from the what day? The first day. Not the second day, not the third day, not God put you on pause for a minute, not God finally got the Rolodex of emails that he needed to catch up on and saw that you had reached out to him. It says, on the first day you prayed, God heard that prayer. And he goes on and he says, but the prince of, per- the, prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was now detained there with the king of Persia. But now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. All right, so a couple of things about this story. Number one, again, Daniel is a man of prayer. This is a habit. This isn't just a reaction to one single moment or simple situation. And he combines this time prayer with fasting. And in this moment, he's very clear. As the angel tells him, the minute, the minute you prayed, God heard and responded. Not days later, not minutes later, the very minute you prayed, God heard it come out of your mouth and he responded to you. I never, ever, ever neglect how critical this is and how important this is and how powerful this is that your words are heard by the ear of God. When you speak to God, your words literally penetrate the physical into the supernatural and they land in the ear of God. Like just like, like think on that for a minute. We've all been in situations where we've tried to talk to somebody that's not listening to us. Whether it's your spouse, your kids, a boss, where you've tried to say something and in the moment they're literally not listening, on the phone texting or distracted, or you're not getting a response to the email. But how incredible is it that the God of creation has an ear passionately, intimately tuned to you so the minute you speak, your words are heard by God. You don't have to wonder if they just disappear in the stratosphere somewhere. You don't have to wonder if they're just floating around and eventually he'll listen and give attention. The minute you speak is the minute God hears. He listens to us and our words penetrate his ears. But here's what else is interesting about the story. This angel shows up to Daniel and says, the minute you prayed, I was dispatched. But that same minute, hell also responded. This prince of Persia is not a man. Because the responder to Daniel is an angel. So he's not tangled up with some, some human king of the prince of Persia. What he's tangled up with is a territorial spirit. Remember? Powers, rulers, spiritual authorities. That's what Paul talked about. He's tangled up with a territorial spirit over a particular region. As the angels dispatched to Daniel, these two go toe-to-toe. I don't understand all the complexities of angel strength and might, but clearly they have certain amounts of strength and certain amounts of weaknesses because these two were locked up in battle and the angel couldn't get free from him. So he calls on another angel, this higher-up superior angel. I told you, this gets... This gets a little crazy, and there's like so many layers of this, but this other angel comes swooping in, steps into the fight, pow, like knocks, whatever, I don't know what an angel does in a fight. You knock him out, rear naked chokehold, I don't know what happens in this one, but they're doing some angel fighting, and then original dispatched angel shows up to Daniel and begins to deliver God's message to him. So here's part of what I wonder, and just a couple of questions. Is it possible that there are still today territorial powers and principalities over places and regions in our world? Definitely. I think that's what Paul was telling us. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and princes. Is it also possible that territory, 
could extend beyond place and even become people. Because I wonder sometimes if it's not possible that there is a territorial dark presence targeting our children. When you see so much of what's come against them in the last number of years. Could it be that there is a territorial dark power over Michigan? Over Detroit? Maybe one even uniquely assigned to Kensington. Maybe over your life. Could it be possible that even some of the things you have battled in your own life have more of a spiritual source than you have given credit? Maybe your anger, maybe your depression, maybe your addiction, maybe your struggling marriage, things that you have tried to give a physical response to, a physical weapon to, and the reality is it is spiritual in origin and requires a spiritual weapon. It, it requires prayer. You know, Jesus once in the book of Mark even had to correct his disciples who were trying to mimic things they had seen him do, like cast demons out of people. So they're trying to do it once, and I don't know what they were doing, but they weren't doing it right because Jesus had to correct them. So I don't know if they were just like saying words. I don't know if they were physically restraining the guy. I don't know what they were doing, but Jesus, Mark chapter nine, check this out. This is what he says to him, and he says, here's why you can't do it. He said, this kind only comes out by prayer. And I just wonder how many of the this kind are there in our lives that we are neglecting right now and thinking it's a physical thing that requires a physical reaction and God's going, no, 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 no. This kind only moves by the power of prayer. Again, how many of us would God look at and say, why are you neglecting all that power by failing to pray? You have more power available to you. There are times that there are just things, I think, in our lives that grip us, and we try to figure out what to do and how to escape and how to get out and how to work out and how to make better, and God's going, right now, I'm just calling you to get on your knees. I'm calling you to, to beckon me to get into the battle. Call me to it. But why, why do you think, with, with Daniel, for example, why do you think God waited to respond until Daniel requested? Like, God's God, he knows he knew Daniel's needs. He knew that Daniel was even going to make a request. Why not preemptively just go, I already know, so I'm just going to respond now. Why wait? Because it's very clear in the passage, the minute you pray, then the angel was dispatched. So why does God wait until David prays and verbalizes his need? Because I don't think it, it's to indicate to us that God doesn't know or that God's powerless. I think it's because sometimes God waits patiently for us to come to a place where we're willing to lay down what power, what authority we have, what we think we have, and admit in humility we are powerless and need his intervention. And that's when he often goes, now I'll move. Not because I couldn't, but because God will often move when we tell him we need him. God comes where he's wanted. God moves when we say we want you. And I think that's part of what we're seeing even in the story of Daniel, why there was this pause and this hesitation. But, but I don't think that that means either that we never do anything. Like this isn't me saying go find a prayer closet and shut the door and that's all you ever do and just, and just pray everything in the world better. Because I mean, even Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he is, he is beckoning us to be agents of his kingdom in this world, to be doers, not, not just thinkers, not just prayers. He moves us to action in the benefit of other people, the benefit of the betterment of this world. One of my, one of my best friends years ago, a police officer in the area, was deeply moved by human trafficking and seeing how at this point in our world, there's actually more human beings sold to other human beings than there ever has been in the history of humanity. 
You know, sometimes I think we fail to realize that's actually still happening right now. So he's like deeply moved by this. He goes, I don't know what to do about this. He goes into a season of prayer about it. Feels like God stirs in him. And here's what it concluded with. It wasn't just him praying. That's where he began. But what it concluded with is he took a year off of the police force, joined up with an organization called IJM, International Justice Mission, moved over to Bangalore, India with his family of five, three young kids, put them all in a sketchy situation where he could work with men and women that were on the front lines, training them to go into houses, to go into these places, kick down the doors and rescue men and women. Like he was a guy that said, I'm gonna pray, but as God motivates, I'm gonna do something with it as well. So I'm not saying that all we do is pray and never do more, but I'm saying if Paul's words are right and true, and I believe they are, that our battles are not flesh and blood, then the place we start is prayer. Not to mention, if we're honest with ourselves, so often today, we think that action is posting about it online. It's our opinion, it's our vlog, it's our, you know, it's the post about it. If we, listen, I, got, I love online, I have my social media, and I use it, and I think there's great things about it. I'm a dog in social media, but I just firmly believe this. If we would spend more time on our knees than we spend online, you might actually see things change. I think God shows up where he's wanted and we tell him he's wanted when we request him to move. And I, th- but this is where sometimes people go, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to, I, I feel like I say weird things. I feel like I don't make sense when I talk to God. I don't know what words to use. Almighty hail to thee in the realms of, like, what do I say? And I would say whatever you would say to anybody else. And what, listen, whatever you would receive with joy from your own children. Like all of us that have kids, we've watched our kids grow up and try and figure out how to talk. And it's a mess at first, right? They can't say anything right. They mix up words. They say things that aren't words, which apparently, according to my wife, I do all the time anyways. But like no, have you, nobody, nobody I would contend in this room or online has ever looked at their kid that keeps messing up the same word and go, man, you're such an idiot. Get it right. How did I have you? No, you're like, oh, it's so adorable. This is how you say it, but that's adorable. Or my son, when he was younger, he used to do this thing. When he'd wake up in the morning, he'd go, the sun is out and the moon's not out. Like, I never scolded him. It was like, too many words. Just say good morning. Like, never. I was like, oh, this is so adorable. We put it on a plaque. It's on a shelf right now at home. Like, there's this weird fear sometimes we get that we have to say all the right things to God. And I think God just says, no, just bring what you got. Say anything. I I don't care if you fumble. Just, like, grow in relationship with me. Talk to me. I want to hear it all. And you don't have to say it right. Sometimes we get intimidated by other Christians. Like, if you're, like, the varsity-level Christian, sometimes, like, "Those those people pray weird sometimes. Where you're like, you ever been in a circle with people praying or around people and some, some dude finishes praying and you're like, I ain't saying nothing now. I don't, I don't even know half the words they used. I can't say, they quoted like eight verses, I think. I don't know what to say. I don't know who Andy Stanley is, but they quoted him in prayer, and, right? Like we don't need to do that. Just talk. And if you're in the room with somebody that's like, the sun is up and the moon's not out, and they're just using more words than necessary, let them go. You just give what you got. Because your father has pleasure over the sound of your voice hitting his ear. Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. Which means that the world is caught up in a battle. Whose origins are supernatural. Which means as long as you and I live, we're in the middle of that battle. 
So whether it's direct at any point in your life or whether it's just indirect because you're living in this world, you and I live in a world that is at war between light and dark, God and the dark one, between heaven and hell. And there are just things, repercussions of that reality in this world that will never change under our own power, might, and strength. There are things in this world, broken, wicked, and evil, that we will never simply legislate away, law away, rule away, make a better you in 30 days away, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps away. There are just realities in this life that will change and only change when we, with humility, put ourselves in front of the throne of Jesus and say, I don't have your strength, but I need it, so please move and then beckon him into action. He hears and then he moves. I'm telling you, your father loves the sound of your voice and loves it when you and I ask him to move. There is a power in prayer. When we align our thoughts with the ways and the will of God and when our words pray back to him, his desires and his plans and beckon him to move, I would contend that in fact, there is nothing more powerful in creation than that. It's not all God's called us to do, but I think it's where he's called us to begin. So we're gonna sing this song right now. It's the song, the language is Holy Spirit, come. Come like a fire, come like a flame. So here's what I want us to do with this one. I, I want us to more than just sing it, I want us to pray it. I want us to make this more than a song we sing, but an actual prayer right now. We started with prayer, let's end with prayer in a way to say, God, we need you. And maybe, maybe that request, come Holy Spirit, like a flood, like a flame, it's for something very personal right now in your life. Or maybe it's just for the ache of our world, for the ache of our planet, for the aches around us. But I would just encourage you as we wrap up with this song, make it more than a song. Make it the request to our Father, requiring him, begging him with humility to move.
another string didn't you but you obliterated that that's right i tried to go with you when you were really high and i think i pulled something in my back (laughs) ah hey we got a prayer team up front this morning that would love to just love on you pray for you before you leave listen to you if you just got stuff you need to pour out so let us care for you and serve you in that way otherwise as you walk out this is 
party in the lobby week. So we'd love to have you if you got the time to spare to hang back, meet some people, be social, be a community. Thanks for being with us. Next week, we launch a whole new series. Looking forward to you joining us for that. Have a great rest of the day, great rest of the week. been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.